Hello and welcome back to Glass Onion Minute. I am your beloved host, Ollie Brady, uh, coming all the way to you from Ireland, and I'm joined for the third day in a row by Alex Gridette, all the way from Los Angeles, which is eight hours time-wise separated from me, which you might think to yourself, that would make recording awkward. And the answer is, yeah, yeah, it really does. So, <laughs> Alex, how are you today? I mean, I'm fine. It's just late afternoon here. I've, I'm, I'm worried about you. Um, no, it's the, we're getting into the into the small hours. You never need to worry about me. If uh, if there's one thing you can be guaranteed is no matter what time it is in the morning, there's probably a good chance I'm still awake <laughs> because Monster Energy Drink and uh, having a ten year old autistic boy, they add up to keeping you awake yep. at all hours. Keeping you on your toes. So today we are talking about. Minute 158, which spans the time from 2 hours and 7 minutes to 2 hours, 7 minutes and 59 seconds. And in the show notes here, Darren has left and he says specifically to talk about the dialogue. Any of the interesting dialogue parts to the scene and specifically to talk about the last line of dialogue. Well, I mentioned it a little bit in the last one. There are actually no lines of dialogue in this minute. (laughs) We have just pure acting from several of the best actors on the planet at the minute. And what happens in the scene is we pick up exactly where the last scene had left off. And it left off with Miles figuring out what Helen is going to do and he starts to preemptively run to cut her off. We also get a cut to Catherine Hand's character, um, Claire. We also see Birdie, played by Kate Hudson. And we see uh, Leslie Odom Jr.'s character, Lionel, and they all seem to be aware of what um, Helen is going to do. She is running to release the protective material which is keeping the Mona Lisa safe at the moment. So we know, and first time I saw this, I had a great big smile on my face. She is going to allow the Mona Lisa to get destroyed. The pride and joy in the collection of Miles, the pride and joy probably for all art lovers around the world. Mm -hmm. It is effectively the most famous painting that's ever existed and she is going to do her best to get it destroyed. She is in full slow motion mode. We have flames in the background. Like This is an action scene of action scenes. There's flames in the background. Miles is running to cut her off. Uh, the other two make a small like birdie kind of falls over while this is happening. Catherine Han reaches out, so Claire reaches out as Claire or as Helen is running past her, and we get to the final climax just as Nat King Cole is breaking into song in the background and he's singing the lyrics: "Are you warm? Are you real, Mona Lisa, or are you cold?" And that is where it cuts off, just as the flames have been released and are licking and causing the pain to start to warp and bubble and it is one of the most cathartic moments in this movie i loved every second of this minute despite the fact that we have no dialogue alex how did you find this minute uh yeah i i i agree it is it is a notably dialogueless scene um and but it packs in a lot in in a very small amount of time. There's there's um, one of the things I I focus on a lot, especially as a lot more mainstream movies seem to be built 
with a maximized production workflow and an eye on we'll find it in post is when I see intentionality at work, when I can see planning and meaning and all of these things that, that movies are supposed to, are supposed to contain, uh, it shouldn't be as rare a thing as it is, but when I see it, especially put into action the way it is here, uh, it's thrilling. Um, because it's just, it's densely packed, it's slow motion, so technically less happens in this minute than would elsewhere, but, uh, but the drama is very high, the comedy is incredibly high in this scene, every, every shot of this scene is funny, um, and chaotic, but somehow also, like, uh, stunningly clear and focused and you're able to track it it's it's in addition to being pivotal for the plot and for the story it's just an incredibly solid minute of filmmaking i really love it yeah it is right so if we take somebody like Zack snyder uh, a film uh, director that i'm not a particular fan of uh, he has his signature touch which is slow motion for the sake of slow motion and you'll be in the middle of an action scene and they'll slow it down and you'll get bullet time and certain people who love his movies will salivate over this and I find it distracting and boring every single time. And then Ryan Johnson uses slow motion for an entire minute and not a single second of it feels wasted to me. It feels intentional and even the way each of the characters moves is... Oh, yeah. Just wonderful. Like, we have the slow motion running of Helen as she's going across the ring wearing that wonderful blood-covered cream or ivory pantsuit that she's wearing. We have Miles running towards her to try and cut her off at the pass. And the other three who are reacting to her, that's Lionel, uh, Claire, and Birdie, and they are surrounded by flames and there's little explosions going off around them and their movements are frantic so even within the slow motion you have fast quick cuts behind each of them because they're reacting to an explosion or they're getting knocked off balance and the whole thing just works wonderfully i genuinely think that this is one of the best scenes in the last two to three years of movie making the flames in slow motion even the ones which are CGI, obviously the ones which are close to the actors are CGI, but the ones in the background are real, or some of them are real, and it just works. Everything just flows so well. And one of the things that I genuinely love about this is that we talked this about this earlier in the last episode, about what Miles is good at. And Miles is good at anticipating danger. He's good at anticipating the future and knowing what he needs to do. He's not very good at putting it into practice. So he wants to tackle Andy. Now, I am a man who has never played American football. I am a man who has played a certain amount of rugby because I'm... Uh, I was going to say squat would be describe me, but I, I, that sounds negative. I am built like a brick uh, house, right? And uh, because of that, I played rugby as I was growing up. And if I ever went to grab or tackle somebody the way that Miles attempts to tackle Janelle Monet in this scene, I would have been kicked off every team I'd ever played on. He makes one of the worst attempts at stopping another human being that I have ever seen. And it's, again, one of those little character beats of this guy knows what he wants to do. This guy knows what he's supposed to do. 
and he's just not capable yeah, of doing it. Yeah, he just... Uh, it, it's... I love that all of the layering, all of the um, complexity, all of the machinations, all the cat-and-mousing of this movie, it really just comes down to... Uh, a, a, a contest of wills and how that manifests in, in physical activity uh, and that just if it comes down to a foot race between, between Miles and Helen Miles just does not have the juice he's just not going to have it uh, he, he's not going to be there um and I, I think it's great because, you know, we were talking, uh, as I mentioned, the intentionality of it. Like you said, you know, there's a lot going on, a lot of, uh, it's all visually very, it could be very frantic and very over the top. But instead, it's, it's all very measured and very deliberate. And there's a choreography to the movement. Uh, there is a composition to everything, to the way everything is integrated, uh, so that yes, some of the flames are definitely clear, visibly CG, and that's fine. You do not have to set fire to Kate Hudson for my entertainment. <laughs> um, uh, but the whole thing is so heightened anyway that the the sort of threadbareness of of the 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 fact that some of the theatricality has been laid bare just kind of fuels it again. Um, you know, uh, even to to your point in the last minute about the baby blue nosediving being uh, maybe not the best executed CG we've ever seen. Uh, it's again, we're in a new visual territory in this movie that what has been up until now very civilized, if garish, is now literally in flames and it's all just chaos and then, but then to have this minute be very measured and feel very choreographed and delightfully so is, is again, another one of these really wonderful contradictions that keeps this movie uh, alive. Yeah, it's, it's just, I, I, like, sometimes I, I'm, all, I'm lost for words when I see something like this. And it's one of those things where people would watch this and think this this is just a light scene it's oh, it's, it's a fun scene at the end of the movie right but it's so so perfectly distills what this movie is about it's about andy getting the revenge or sorry getting the revenge that through her sister so it's about helen getting revenge for andy and she's able to go and physically take that revenge that she's looking for and she does it with this mad rush against all odds running across a floor of glass mm -hmm. to reach out and stretch to grab a jester because it's a little ornament of a jester to bring down miles as he's trying to stop her and the entire movie, that's what's been happening. It's her running into danger, trying to avenge her sister. And she manages to do it. And I said, I think it's a wonderful scene. And then even just as the flames go up and the music hits and it's like, are you warm, Mona Lisa? I mean, she's probably pretty warm right now. <laughs> but as this is happening, we see Edward Norton drops to his knees. And if the Mona Lisa is the most famous piece of art in the world, 
I would argue that uh, the scream, uh, Munch is the scream, is maybe the second most famous part. And we just see, and it's more relevant in the next minute, which we'll be talking about tomorrow, you can just see Edward Norton bringing his two hands up to the side of his face yeah. and turning slightly and his mouth starting to open in the movement and in the motion of the screen. And again, it's little touches like that. And this is, the, the funny thing about this is, I'm saying little touches. That is one of the most heavy-handed uh, visual clues you could ever have in a movie. And Ryan Johnson makes it work. He makes somebody forming the actual munches screen with their body and their face almost feel subtle because of how bombastic this scene has been. Uh, and I also want to give a shout out to Janelle Monet. Um, I don't want this to sound like a, a man talks about horniness. Uh, I don't mean it like this at all. It takes a very special person who can make themselves look as unbelievably beautiful as she looks in the scene where she's reaching to grab that jester at the end and the look of happiness and relief on her face when she actually makes contact with it it's genuinely beautiful i have i have a note here that uh i janelle monet knows how to play to a camera better than most living people uh, oh, she's incredible. She's I, I've I've been a huge fan of hers for uh, a decade or more at this point, and of course, when it was announced that she was going to be in this, they were going to be in this. I believe I I, th- I I I don't want to get Janelle Monae's pronouns wrong, um, but when it was announced Janelle Monae was going to be in this, I was ecstatic because I think Janelle Monae brings something incredible to every single thing they've ever been a part of. And I'm talking right down to the duet they did with Bert on Sesame Street in the, um, <laughs> uh, and I, just a natural born performer. Uh, but while I think Janelle Monet is wonderful in, she doesn't, re- she sort of plays a dual role here, but only barely has to play, actually Andy. play Andy for much of it. But hang on, I'm going to look this up so I'm not fumbling. Uh, just, I, you can edit this out if you like, but hang on, I got to know Janelle oh, so pronouns. Bro. Pronouns. Okay. They, them, her, she. We're fine. Um, Perfect. We can use all of them. All of them. So, uh, uh, but, I, so Janelle Monet is wonderful in this. She's clearly having a lot of fun with it, uh, especially after the 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 big turn at the at the midpoint that that Andy is actually Helen, and then once we see behind that curtain, behind that Mona Lisa uh, uh, visage, um, that's when Janelle Monet really starts to get really starts to let loose. But I was also sitting there wondering, and not that I was complaining, but it's like why why Janelle Monet? I mean, why not? Janelle Monet is just as good an answer as any, but like, there's not, there aren't a lot of inherent signifiers to the part that said Janelle Monet specifically would be great for this. Not the way that Ana de Armas really brought something that felt very personal to Marta in Knives Out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was not sorry Janelle Monet was in this. Uh, her her ability to play both poised and completely uh, off balance lend her to the two parts very well or even the two sides of one part very well uh but i couldn't figure out it's like why like 
why get Gen- why go to the trouble of casting Janelle Monet if you're not going to bring to bear everything she can do? And then, in the last minutes of among the last minutes of the movie, we get this incredible slow motion display of physical and facial nonverbal performance from her of just athleticism and grace and determination and all of the things that she is so capable of in all of her different modes of performance. Uh, you know, the, uh, that she is poised and beautiful and vengeful and, uh, and dynamic and focused and just the way she is hitting those marks just in the way when she goes to to slam down the the jester, the way her arm comes up and comes back down, and the way it turns her body, and the way her eyeline stays locked, it, it's a gorgeous physical performance. Uh, it, it's really incredible. And then you've got her on the Z axis heading toward camera, and you've got Norton behind her, just absolutely missing the tackle. Uh, and his face is just this co- comic mask. It's it's all incredible the way it comes together. And you've even got, you know, you said before there's no dialogue in this scene and there's not in the verbal sense. But I love that all of the face work in this scene from Edward Norton, mm-hmm. from Janelle Monet, from the jester. There is a dialogue going on here. <laughs> the jester's mouth is open in shock. I mean, that there's this very... I'm I'm reminded when 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 I was a kid I took you know kid acting classes and I remember a theater game that we would play where you had to have a dialogue with someone where one person could only use the word yes and one person could only use the word no and it wasn't necessarily very productive but it was you know it didn't make for Harold Pinter but it was a fun theater game for eleven year olds to do this scene is doing that though because Miles is very no. You know, big, big dramatic Darth Vader. No, mm-hmm. Helen is very yes, and even the even the jester is stuck in this oh no grimace, and it's all like it is completely over the top, but it's not. But it's it, it's never out of hand. It's all completely in control, and it's all been building to this. And like I said, we've been getting these stacking catharses over the last few minutes, and this one is just. Such a great, like, cherry on top. And it's, I I wrote the, I I have a note here too. You know, the Nat King Cole needle drop is so completely on the nose. Of course Mm -hmm. it is. But it's like, you can't not use it. If you're going to have this balletic scene of total visual chaos, but complete physical and emotional control... And you want to underscore it with something beautiful and loving that brings about this irony, this love ballad about the Mona Lisa while you're torching the Mona Lisa. I mean, it's, it's, yes, it is absolutely an obvious choice, but I love that this whole minute is obvious choices played up to 12. Yeah. Well, and this is why I, I think it's not quite an, as obvious a choice, right? Um, is because it's done over the action scene. Yes, absolutely. And it is, if you've never heard the song, 
Um, and it's a wonderful song. I, I highly recommend you watch it uh, or you listen to it. And uh, Nat King Cole has one of the greatest voices of all time. Um, but it's it's strings. It's a light, delicate strings that has a little bit of guitar played over the background and some tiny little piano notes in there. But it's like strings that start out very light. It's at the end of the last minute and then start getting heavier as you bring in more and more of the, the violins. And it just starts to swell towards him. And like as a lot of songs from that period of time come, they swell, they swell, they swell. And then the music drops off when the voice kicks in. And again, it's not King Cole's voice. Um, whereas I think a less talented director, a less talented uh, person who's helping out with the score would have dropped Elton John, Mona Lisa and Madhouse, which again is a brilliant song. Don't get me wrong, and I love it when it, it shows up in Almost Famous, for example. But it's not like here's why because it's so here's much it hits so much harder. It doesn't it wouldn't feel right here. Whereas Mona Lisa with Nat King Cole feels freaking perfect. I can give you another good reason why the Elton John song Wild just as uh uh sensible a choice would have been wrong for this minute. Uh and you actually I I was about to say something. I was building up saying something that you gave me the perfect segue into is that the Nat King Cole song is completely out of place in the soundtrack of this movie. And I yep. don't mean that, you know, they haven't they never released an actual like like uh um you know, awesome mixtape version uh <laughs> soundtrack of this. There's Nathan Johnson's score, which is wonderful and we'll talk about that too. But um every song in this, it's 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 all it's all been diegetic songs up until now. Either either Miles playing Blackbird on a guitar or, you know, his uh the Alpha DJ, which we're left to assume is like is like his version of Alpha's version of Alexa playing uh playing Bowie songs or something. But all of the music that's played is all in this very specific vein of like like Apple music cool. Like 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 kind of boomer cool in a way. Um but like like Steve Jobs cool. You know? So yeah. if we're talking about of the things that Miles has inherited or stolen from uh, from other people, it's that sense of it's that sense of cool. Um it's it's that tech genius cool. This is the stuff you listen to. You listen to John Lennon, you listen to Paul McCartney, you listen to David Bowie. Elton John somewhat fall falls into that vein and would have been just at, just as at home uh you know being played diegetically in a scene earlier but since this is a non-diegetic song and miles is no longer in control of this he is no longer curating the experience it had to be something that would not fit with the rest of the soundtrack uh which has all been him playing the music he likes. So I actually think it's a, it's now that I'm thinking about it, it is, it's, it's still an on the nose choice, but there is still a lot of thought going toward why this decision and why not some other decision. Yeah. I, I said, there's so much thought behind everything in this movie that we could be talking about every single minute for an hour and a half, every single time. I think like, we have been. <laughs> it feels like we do and I'm sure Darren will be delighted by it and the people who are listening were like but last week's were only 18 minutes <laughs> um, but what I'm it's just there's so much depth to everything um, 
Is there anything else you want to talk about in this particular minute? Uh, yeah, I had one other thing. Um, oh, I loved uh, two things actually. I'm sorry. Uh, is no, there's the, no no rush. Take your time. Sure. Uh, I love Andy flipping Miles the twin birds that he oh, yes. it's that he previously had uh, had thrown up as uh, you know an fu to the establishment. Um, but what I love about this, and much like in the last minute, Blanc calling the explosion actual disruption, is that Helen is the one in a position to to say F you to the establishment. There's also, I'm going to, this may be a total coincidence, but I'm going to spin it out like it's deliberate. <laughs> the crossed hands. Oh, yeah. It's, it's Wakanda forever, but just with the middle fingers. And so there is something, if you're going to look at it from by that light, and again, total coincidence, but Glass Onion came out in theaters, I think something like a week or 10 days after Black Panther Wakanda Forever had. So not a tie-in, but certainly it was in the ether at the time. There's something really lovely about a white guy who has claimed this visual symbol as his own thing, having that reclaimed by a black woman. Um, is really kind of lovely. And it's also, by the way, a very gratifying gesture to pull. And um, just, you know, the, it, it's genuinely better than just flipping someone off one-handed. It's so, it's so well done because she's barely up off her knees at this point. And you would think that she would be using her hands to, to get herself up get herself yeah. back up and steady and she takes the time to as you said cross them in front of her chest flash the double bird and then start running mm-hmm. and yeah it's it's wonderful and I said it's another bit of perfect physical acting because I guarantee you that is not hard to pull that is not easy to pull off no of course off like that. Um, I also like I, I, I also I just noticed this time in rewatching the minute for our conversation today but because they're at the far end of the room and not really in a position to do anything uh, to stop Helen, as Helen gets up, you can just make out that Peg and Whiskey and even Lionel are ju- they're just they're just running for it. Like they are just getting the hell out of there because the room is on fire. Um, I love that uh, Helen, you know, wipes past Bertie and Claire, and there's almost this moment of. The, the way that it was staged, it's almost this moment of choreography to it. Like, they look... Bertie and Claire look like they're backup dancers for Tina Turner or something. Uh, or like it's the single ladies <laughs> Throwing video. their hair down. And, yeah, they've, yeah. Got, they've, got, they've got, you know, the, 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 the fan is, is blowing... Their, the fans are blowing their hair around and there's a lot of elbows and, and, and hips and wrists. And it's just... It's, it's very satisfying to watch. And I just... I love that, like, maybe they want to stop her, but they are just a little too on fire right now, and it's <laughs> got to be Miles's problem. Yeah, oh, I, and as, oh, yeah, the, the, the burning room, it, it really only hit me this last time. It does kind of remind me of the, to return to our conversation from the other day, the post-Holdo maneuver burning hangar uh, in Last Jedi. There's a... Um, Ryan Johnson likes burning rooms and in most in in most movies and most filmmakers perspective an explosion or a fire makes a space off limits 
uh, there's something I really like about the way he stays in a room on fire, that the business isn't done yet. <laughs> the explosion wasn't it. There's still, uh, you know, um, Finn still, still... stuff to be done. Finn's yeah. still got to fight Phasma. They've still, you know, um, like, it, it, it's, it's... An explosion isn't the end of something, and it's a fun, uh, rhythmic change-up um, that, that sort of makes you feel... makes me think differently about a burning room. Yeah, I mean, if Especially, it's me, I'm I'm peg and I'm whiskey and I'm out. Like, sorry, it's on fire. I'm gone. Oh, a hundred percent. I it, like, um, I always joke about it with the kids at work. Uh, so I I teach in a school or whatever, and um, the we do fire drills all the time. And every single time when we finish up the fire drill and we come back into the class, the kid will always go, Mister Brady, Mister Brady, sir, sir. Like, if there was a real fire, like, do you think we'd be able to be as calm as we are during the you know, the fire drill. And I said, no, realistically, I'm out the window and <laughs> you're never going to see me again. And they, they think I'm joking. I am 100% Tough serious. Tough but fair. Uh, if enough flames start licking at the door to my classroom, I am out the window. <laughs> the fire escape can forget whatever it is. I'm on the ground floor. The window's big enough for me to get through it. Uh, I'm not saying I've thought about this and I'm not saying I'd push kids out of the way to get through the window. But I'm not saying I wouldn't either. Yeah. So... In a in a situation where it's fight or flight in and the thing you're gonna fight against is a fire, <laughs> flight is your number one option. Yeah, no, um, you're gonna you're gonna if, if your school, God forbid, catches fire, you're gonna make the nightly news and not the way a teacher necessarily wants to. Oh, well they're gonna say uh, <laughs> hero teacher goes to get help from neighboring town. There you go. Uh, there you go. I went to get another fire very po- very positive spin. I love it. <laughs> Uh, so, because it's Wednesday, I have a very specific question to ask you, Alex. Yeah. And it is about the sequel to this movie, which has been announced. Uh, it's going to be called uh, Knives Out 3, Glass Onion 2. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the next Benoit Blanc movie. Um, without giving away too many spoilers, if anything has been released so far, what, do you, uh, what would you like to have happen in Knives Out 3? I will preface this by saying I have absolutely no information about this apart from it existing and i'm very happy about that i do wonder what the subtitle will be because i know i know that uh a knives out mystery was sort of forced on ryan johnson uh who just wanted the movie to be called glass onion um Mm -hmm. and who could blame him i think a benoit blanc mystery if you want to keep the continuity makes sense but they're not trying to keep continuity they're trying to remind you that it's connected to a previous movie so i wonder if the next one is called you know third thing (laughs) a knives out mystery a glass onion mystery um it might be just to keep the connection alive i think it would be cheeky if they just called the next one title a glass onion mystery and there's always it's always new title and subtitle is the previous one the previous movie yeah Um, that would be good i am elated that there's going to be a third one uh i think i i think i mentioned this in an earlier episode before being told not to talk about the third one i think this is absolutely ryan johnson's strike zone like he is he's on rails with this series um Mm -hmm. and i don't mean cocaine although i don't know i don't know the man um (laughs) if, if if it is his dosage is spot on uh like like andy with kombucha or helen with kombucha uh he's he's in the zone um but i think i think he should be allowed to keep doing these for as long as he wants to um 
and it seems to me he's only going to do them as long as he has ideas to do them. Uh, and, uh, in which case I'm like, bring it on. Um, the things that I would like to see in the next one, of course, I want to see Noah Segan return as yet another character. Um, I, I'm a-okay with him being the Kang the Conqueror of this universe. Um, I think he might actually be a good pick for Kang the Conqueror in the Marvel universe, too. They're going to need one. Um, but, uh, no, the one thing that has occurred to me that has, that, that would tickle me the most, I try not to fan cast these things. I know a lot of people on various social media do that. Um, and they always, and why shouldn't they lean into their own preferences for who they'd like to see? But I think Ryan Johnson winds up having such a singular eye for the chemistry the ensemble that he pulls together can bring. So it's like, I could fan cast this, but, but I honestly feel like I'm not trying to be too kiss ass. I think whatever he's going to come up with is going to be better. The one thing I definitely would love to see, um, is I would like Ryan Johnson to reteam with his brother's bloom co-star slash the wife of Daniel Craig, Rachel Vice. Uh, I would like, I would like her to join the Benoit Blanc universe, preferably as like a Nora Charles slash Irene Adler figure. Um, someone whom Blanc knows, maybe has a history with. I know he's canonically gay now, and uh, so it doesn't have to be a romantic history. But someone who just is... He could do with uh, having a bug in the corner of his eye that he just can't quite swat away. And I think... It's it's surprising to me that uh, Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz have not done more movies together. Uh, I know having I know they met on one, but it's sort of uh, it's not one of the most seen ones from either of their filmographies. No, I'd say not. And I just think that it would be a lot of fun watching them be sort of. I, I would love for Benoit Blanc to get a met his match frenemy. Um, and uh, a sort of, like, if you will, a sort of uh, a sunny side up take uh, response uh, to Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, in a way. <laughs> um, and uh, which, by the way, you know, which I know we, we've spoken about David Fincher before in our episodes. Uh, and I do think it's funny that these are Daniel Craig's most prominent detectives. Uh, and if you ever want to have a good time, just imagine that that's actually Benoit Blanc in Dragon Tattoo. And the movie <laughs> becomes 85% funnier, uh, which it sort of has nowhere to go but up, but still. Uh, so really, I don't, I don't have any particular prediction for it. I like that... Um, uh, I like that Knives Out is so autumnal. I like that Glass Onion is so summery. I would like something maybe in the snow, sort of maybe a little Swiss Alpsy, you know, uh, to, to, to get away from it a bit. Um, but uh, whatever it is, I'm on board and I'm there first day, first show. Yeah. Uh, just since you mentioned it and we got like a little bit of Poirot going on and we want to have Rachel Weiss in it. Do you think Rachel Weiss could pull off a southern accent? Uh, I do. Um, I think. Uh, I think she could pull off. A, I, I. I don't. I mean, I know her American accent is pretty good. I know she's played, uh, you know, Mid Atlantic a few times and pretty convincingly. Um, 
I, I'm sure she could do it. I think, uh, I think certainly she could be as from the South as Benoit Blanc is. Cause I don't think you could pin him down to a particular County in Georgia or anything, but so the reason I'm asking yeah. is since Benoit Blanc is gay, so we don't want to be having this as an Irene Adler situation, but what if we are going to go Holmes wise and we make her his sister and she can take on a Mycroft role? I mean, I would absolutely be okay with that. I would also be perfectly all right if she were his sister and uh, she doesn't have an accent at all. Uh, I would love that. I, I well, I know there was that. talk. I had read that there was talk of having Blanc have a completely different accent in this movie than from Knives Out with no explanation offered. Just now he sounds like this. And they dismissed it as being kind of silly and frivolous. And it would be. Um, especially for such a signature of the character. Uh, the only thing is, I don't necessarily want to see Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz play brother and sister because I feel like their chemistry is, I would hope, more romantic than that. And then it just gets, I don't know, it, 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 it takes on some weird dimensions. But, you know, uh, but, uh, but I think it could be, look, I think... I think whoever's going to wind up in the next one is going to be delightful. These movies have been designed to delight, and so far they are completely two for two. Uh, and uh, all I can say about the third one is bring it. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it as well. Um, Alex, do you have anything to plug for our listeners? I do. Um, I uh, I have a substack that I tend to... Not as often as I should, but that I try to. Daniel Craig has, uh, has, the works of Daniel Craig have shown up in it. The, it's, uh, it's called Five Great Minutes, fivegreatminutes.substack.com. And what I do is I take, and, uh, this format should sound a little bit familiar, is I take a great sequence or moment or whatever from a movie and, or in some cases from a stage musical and analyze the living hell out of it um, and really just go to town on it. I've done pieces on Bond's introduction, the black and white sequence in Casino Royale, uh, a, uh, I, the asteroid field from Empire Strikes Back, which is my favorite action sequence in maybe any movie ever. Uh, I will probably be covering something from either Knives Out or Glass Onion coming up. Uh, because again, as we've been discovering in these episodes, there's almost no, there's almost no setting on a microscope you can't hold these movies up to without finding something interesting. Uh, and that's really what I like is that um, the basis of the of of this blog newsletter, whatever you want to call it, is that I find the way time plays out in movies to be very interesting, and in that it's very you know if you told me. If you told me that the train station shootout in The Untouchables was 11 minutes long, I would say, that doesn't sound quite right, but I believe you. And if you told me it was 90 seconds long, I'd be like, yeah, maybe that's it. Like, there's almost no way of telling. So I find the dilation of time, that that effect that movies have, very interesting. And it's like, well, if you're going to go to the trouble of dilating time like this... I'm going to do it. I'm going to do you one better and go. We're going to go shot by shot, if not frame by frame here. Yeah, that's that sounds fantastic. Um, I remember thinking about this years ago when I was when I was coming up with ideas for podcasts and wanting to do podcasts. I had an idea of movies that had scenes that 
you expect one thing that then go in a completely different direction and then how people get disappointed because they want it to be the way it was so the, the example I, I i always use is um have you ever seen ridley scott's 2010 robin hood movie yes yeah i don't remember so, too much of it but yeah yeah well the big arrow shooting scene in that happens near the end and it's just in the middle of a battle and he shoots an arrow and it's not particularly spectacular and a lot of people left the movie um vaguely disappointed in the film and it's a good movie it's a well-made movie it's a well-acted movie uh oscar isaac is fantastic in it and pretty much everybody nails their parts and it's the fact that they didn't have a robin hood arrow splitting another arrow or arrow going straight into the center of a bullseye and because that moment was taken from him for another moment that actually makes way better sense in the context of what was going on that they left the thing. And I always had that idea of talking about scenes that people want to have in movies like that. So yeah, it sounds similar to what you're talking about, about how you can be in a movie, watching a scene, and it, it might be eight minutes long, but it's so well done that it feels like it's a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. So yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. So that's, uh, to reiterate, uh, fivegreatminutes.substack.com. I try to update it weekly. These days it's been more a bit more like monthly. The essays can be very long and tend to take it out of me. So um, it becomes an approach avoidance thing to sit down and do, uh, do another one. But I'm going to be talking coming up about scenes from uh, Little Shop of Horrors, Out of Sight, uh, God, I can't even remember the other ones I have queued up. Uh, I think I'm going to try and do all that jazz at some point because I love it, but every scene in that is so dense that I just get uh, discouraged. So we'll see. Uh, but do check it out if you have the mo- if you have a moment. Not not to spoil it, but what is the scene from Out of Sight? Uh, Out of Sight probably going to do the hotel bar into the hotel room because that is such an ungodly perfect scene from all angles and i have a lot to say about it i was going to suggest either that or the opening robbery Um, also great also very very great uh right so do you have any social media uh that people could look you up on uh yeah you can find me uh on uh on blue sky these days atomic giant all one word dot b sky dot social uh i it's it's a bit of a diet twitter situation but uh but a much more pleasant one so far uh so do check it out uh and come find me atomic giant oh and just for the record i want everybody to uh understand that i am recording this on the 11th of the 11th 2023 at 1:38 a.m mm. and we're going to talk about x baby that's right that's the first time that joke stroke pun has ever been made but mm. the twitter handle for this particular show is at glass onion min all one word and uh, you can find us on instagram at benoit blanc minute all one word and you can find us if you have it on treads.net uh, slash at Benoit Blanc Minute again. Uh, if you've been listening to us and you've been enjoying the show, please rate and review us. You can subscribe on your podcast of choice and you can give those reviews in app and we will aggregate them. And you know what? I'm just going to throw it out there. If we get any five star reviews, I'm going to convince Darren to read them out on the next episode. <laughs> so uh, I just want to say thank you very much to Alex for coming on and talking to me today. And uh, we'll say goodbye and we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow.